わさびアニメすごいですね The views and opinions expressed during Convention Nerds are solely those of the personalities, hosts, and or guests appearing on the broadcast and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of Green Mustard Entertainment Inc. or any other agency, organization, event, partnership, employer, or company. And hello, everybody. My name is Tom Croom, and I have not had a haircut since December. <laughs> And、uh, with me, as always, is my hetero life mate and partner,、uh, Ken Joey Snackpants Nabby. Say hi. Hi. I、and、actually got a haircut. He got a haircut. That's why I'm still wearing the hat. So,、um, uh, welcome to the second episode of Convention Nerds.、Uh, quick recap for those of you who, for some reason, skipped the first episode、uh, Convention Nerds is a weekly podcast where myself and Mr. Nabby、uh, invite people who own, run, Uh, pop culture conventions,、uh, or as Ken likes to refer to them, consumer focused media shows、yes. uh, to discuss、uh, their shows,、uh, the industry at large, and things like that.、Uh, it all got started basically、uh, back in、uh, 2000, or I went to my first convention back in 1989, 1990. It was a Star Trek convention. I won first place in the costume contest, and George Takei gave me a Dick Tracy movie poster and $20 cash. Uh, flash forward to the year 2000, I went to an event called JCon in Orlando, Florida,、uh, where I met、uh, this guy, Ken,、uh, who was hosting a Transformers panel, which I promptly sat in and corrected everybody hosting it with him.、Uh, next year,、uh, started an anime club in Orlando, Florida called Wasabi Anime.、Uh, and then the rest of it's kind of history. We,、uh, we do conventions, we do events.、Uh, so I've had my foot in fandom for some time. Uh, uh, which means technically I now qualify as old man. And I'll toss it over to Ken. Well,、uh, my name's Ken Nabby.、Uh, Tom and I met, like you mentioned, 2000 at JCon. JCon was the,、uh, the show that I helped run and owned from 2000, 2009, Orlando, Florida. We were the offshoot of the Japanese Animation Club Orlando, which was the official anime club of the University of Central Florida.、Uh, we used to meet on campus、uh, and have,、uh, you know, watch VHS tapes on 19 inch TVs. With scripts walking both ways uphill to,、uh, to get to the TV. To you can't say through the snow because it's a Florida college. I know it's Florida, so you can't have that.、Um, and you o k n we w talked about doing convention nerds ages ago. The problem is that Tom and I were always at a convention.、Yes. Therefore, we had no time to run a podcast or a feed for convention nerds. And now we're all stuck at home. So now、yes. we have plenty of time. So thank you, pandemic, for facilitating the show. <laughs>、um, that said, segues nicely.、Um, I am going to prologue before we do an introduction that nobody in the three windows you see had a conversation regarding wardrobe before we logged into this call to do this show. So none of us planned to all wear our Momocon shirts, not just shirts, the identical effing shirt. Jersey. So, Yes. So, with that,、uh, please give a, a warm welcome to Jess and Stucky from Momocon. Thank you for coming. They were clapping. There's a clapping sound. Hey, everybody. Hey. Hello, Internet. Hello, guys. Yeah, you got to thank Meta Threads for the design on this.、They've、yeah, it looks really good. I wanted、Meta、to be different.、Things. And so, we're always matchy matchy. And、mm. I didn't know that it was going to be matchy across the board here, but I,、yeah. feel, I feel special because I wore the 2020 shirt. So, yeah. Yeah, like a lot、uh, of the PR always、uh, wants us to wear the same. Same clothes. I don't know. Yeah. Well, the shirt is just so comfortable. That's the thing. It's not just a, just a I mean, this is a super comfortable shirt. It's a nice shirt. It's a nice、yeah. shirt. Like I said, my wife gave me a hard time about buying it because it's not a cheap shirt. Yeah.、Uh, but、uh, yeah, 
Uh, good colors. I, I, I love all the merchandising behind you guys. I thought I that it was always my goal is to have that kind of logo, being able to splash it across whatever I was doing. It never got to that level. And I've always been impressed year after year about what you guys are able to put out there and it, how it all ties in and your theme each year. So uh, it's really nice. <laughs> but to, to segue in, we know who you guys are, but if you guys could introduce yourselves and explain your positions within your convention. Sure. You go first. Sure. So I'm Chris Stuckey. I am the co-chair for MomoCon. Uh, so co-owner, co-chair, along with Jess here. Jess, if you want to. No, I don't know if you had longer one. I don't know. I'm the fun dad. Hi, I'm Jess. Uh, I'm the founder and the co-chair of MomoCon. So he was around in year one, but he was relegated to watching um, sometimes when we forgot the subtitles, random live action Japanese stuff in room. And he was the champion and stuck around. And and now we do this together. And Mm -hmm. (laughs) it, it was definitely a thing back when we were on campus. Our, I can talk about the event if you'd like me to. Yeah, yeah. Talk about MomoCon, where you, what year you started. Tom and I know the transition, so um, I don't know if a lot of other people do. So I uh, want you to give all of our viewers that background, that history. Sure. When I was in college, back in the before times in ancient Egypt, I don't know, like some time so far back in the past that I can barely remember it. You know, I went uh, to that we, college too in, in, the, in the before time. <laughs> Uh, we, I, we had a pretty robust anime club and we were watching VHS tapes that we ordered off from somewhere and we had really great space at campus and wanted to see if we could start trying to do a convention type thing. At the time, there wasn't a lot of, uh, conventions that involved video gaming pretty heavily in the area. So we wanted to do a lot more with that. And we, of course, were the anime club. So we wanted to do a lot of stuff with anime. And since then, that was in 2005 was our first year. We expanded all the way through 2011 on Georgia Tech campus and grew very, very large, over 10,000 people in 2011. Uh, and we were a free event. We were the largest free, free admission event of this type in North America uh, in our last year. And then it became unfeasible to hold it on campus because we just had way too many nerds. Yep. But, you know, that, hey, good problems. So we transitioned to uh, a paid admission event that was held in downtown Atlanta and subsequently moved to the Georgia World Congress Center, where in 2019, we welcomed over 40,000 unique attendees. So, you grew did. a bit. Wow. Name them. Yeah. <laughs> How does that compare to you with the other large event in Atlanta in comparison to size? Uh, well, we are, what, so, half so the size of DragonCon right now? Not in okay. 10 hotels? What? Yeah, not in 10 hotels. <laughs> uh, right now. Um, and our trajectory, we had a faster growth because we're not as old as uh, we haven't been around as many years. Uh, we have, no. a, for full disclosure, so, go ahead. I, I was going to say, well, DragonCon's been around for a while. Um, right, right, right. They were since the 80s and had a broad focus and was one of the earlier events and longer running events. And they survived. And there's a huge Atlanta history repository of all the conventions in Atlanta. It's actually really fascinating to read. They survived a lot, but they helped create and establish a community welcoming of events, Mm -hmm. right? So, Mm -hmm. I mean, DragonCon essentially was like the the road paver, if you will, out front, Mm -hmm. leading the way for other events in Atlanta to get started. In fact, I think because of Atlanta, so many events exist in Atlanta compared to other major cities. Right. Well, there's a a really big base of, like, for example, cosplayers. There's... Mm -hmm. 
outside of maybe Los Angeles, there's probably more professional level cosplayers in Atlanta than anywhere else in the United States. And a lot of that comes from 30 plus years of history of Dragon Con and people are used to the concept of it and they get involved in it very young and it's a very developed scene in our, in our region. Yeah. Well, we've seen, I mean, when Ken and I uh, have obviously been to Atlanta way too often. Um, I remember one time we were doing a tour of locations for an event and while we were downtown, I don't know if it's there anymore, there was a steampunk store, like not just order online, whatever. It was a brick and mortar. And and the fact that there's enough of a, a fandom ecosystem within one city that's not L.A. to say, hey, come in and get your brown leather and goggles. Well, um, you know, it speaks a lot to the, the, you know, the type of people that kind of congregate around there. I mean, Atlanta's always had its, its interesting pieces. I mean, with uh, White Wolf Gaming being based on Stone Mountain for so long. I mean, Atlanta was the epicenter for um, geek goth culture for, well, almost a full 10 years. I mean, you guys, you had mentioned you'd left the campus just because it was it was oversized? Is that, I mean, uh, that was a really, so, it was a really big piece of it. <laughs> this might be a deep cut, but uh, so for Momocon, uh, the anime club it started out of was called right. Anime Oteku, which is a punk. Yeah, 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 and George Tech. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. And, <laughs> and uh and the club was what allowed it to facilitate being right. on campus right mm-hmm. like very familiar with that school <laughs> and uh essentially the event grew too large that the the first thing we actually heard was uh there's there's a historical event in atlanta called freaknik that usually right. happened around spring yeah. break mm-hmm. traditionally only for a few years but it had a notorious background yes enough we sort of grew into the size that uh, the campus be, became concerned with mm-hmm. a lot of people that weren't associated with the campus that they were thinking that Freaknik was somehow returning. It was right. really weird because that is weird. an event that is not at all like a convention. Yeah. And, they just and didn't so understand. That was when the event, the convention, or the, rather the campus first started reaching out to us. It's like, what are you guys? We don't even know who you well, are. What are you doing? Yeah. Uh, we're already working with the other yeah. side of the campus for but, many, many years. But the, but, like, yeah. the police department, yeah. the campus right. police department, a lot of the faculty, like a lot of the departments were just their own islands. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, and so we, we eventually were able to find somebody uh, who was a vice provost that kind of like knew me and was able to advocate on our behalf and made it easier for us to get some buildings because it was an argument. Right. Basically with the, yeah. The we, we started out in the student center, then we moved to the student center and the instructional center, and then that and the flag building and right. then that and another building. And yeah. we were out of space and we had to move out from the middle of campus because there just wasn't any space left that we could actually get. So we okay. moved to the management building and then mm-hmm. we took up three floors, maybe four of the management building. All of the Biltmore, historic Biltmore ballrooms were across the street, which were right. gorgeous, but expensive. And then all, mm-hmm. pretty much all of the usable space in the Georgia Tech Hotel, or at least all yeah. that they would give us. Mm-hmm. And that was our last year on campus. And even then, even then, we were bursting at the seams. And that was a hodgepodge of trying to put together multiple buildings. Yeah. And and we were, you know, uh, on campus and we didn't actually charge an admission fee. Right. But I actually made a system for this kind of like freemium model system, if right. you know yeah, the yeah, term, yeah. where people had the option to buy things like a shirt or other package. Or have things. their badge mailed to them. That yeah. was like the big oh, yeah. thing. Yeah. So they didn't have to wait in line for a badge. And, and that helped us float through 2011 or else we, I mean, like we yeah. would have, we would have had to move a year earlier without that kind of system. Yeah. The last year we were on campus, um, the entire budget for that year 
um, cost us about $40,000. And then the wow. event grossed about $44,000. So, so it was like, part, the, yeah. no, it was less. The, 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 it, it was a margin of about that. And yeah. so it was very tight margins and leading into what became our first year off campus. Yeah. Right? Um, uh, we just didn't have because there's no way we could have had enough capital to go back yeah. into the event so, to actually have it for the next year. We, we transitioned right. into an event that did charge an admittance fee mm-hmm. uh, as part of a membership badge. Um, and with, we kept 8,600 of those 10,000 people yeah. from 2011, wow. which I thought was pretty good considering yeah. we went from free to paid. I mean, that's well, and, and then we got all quick. of them back the next year. Yeah. So, so J- Ken, Ken went through the, you know, I was around for as much, but Ken was running it more, you know, University of Central Florida, you know, right. it's a very similar story. The Jayco, the Japanese Animation Club of Orlando, became JCon, then JCon outgrew the club, and and it kind of well, finally had to step out the, of the camp. We could have stayed on that campus for another two years. After year three, UCF started booking our dates out because we had only booked the first five years or the first four years, mm-hmm. and then they blocked us out to the point where we had to move off campus. That's what's like. They didn't like the number of people we were bringing on, and we were becoming a, a drain on the infrastructure for the college itself. That, yeah, I mean, very similarly, Georgia Tech viewed us as a strain on the infrastructure right. from the campus. Because we were getting all the tech was included in our rental fee, and the, the only thing we were really paying for extra was the was security. We were having to get um, campus uh, the campus police force. But it's hilarious. All the buildings – I was at – I went to Georgia Tech 1990, uh, 1991. So um, – it's just all the almost every building you mentioned was even there when I went to went to tech. Well, the instructional uh, center was. I was going to say one yeah. more uh, management the, building. <laughs> the entire student center is getting demolished now. Yeah. The old oh, student wow. center that we used for all those years, because I went uh, to tech two thousand two to two thousand five, right. and then all of the moment kind of events were at that student center until like last year. I had a dance there last year. Uh, they they closed that building at the end of the semester, and they're supposedly we're opening the new one that they built uh in august i haven't been there because covid and i'm not sure what's open i'm I'm gonna tell you so i started at georgia tech in 2004 fall 2004 semester and the student center was relatively new i think it may have been around a year or two no i came in in 2002 and it wasn't brand new yeah so it had to have been i remember that they just talked about some stuff but and then now they're demolishing it because it's too old makes me feel super i know (laughs) yeah I don't yeah. even think me, my fraternity house is on campus anymore. They got bulldozed down for housing for the '96 Olympics. So let me let, let me just so 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 where I was going was, and I'm going to present the question to Jess and Stuckey, uh, but then you know Ken, I want you to answer the same question afterwards. What is the one thing that was a key difference on a college convention versus you know the the private ones we do off property now that you miss that you wish you could recapture or redo somehow? that you can't anymore. Ugh, but I, I miss. There's a lot of I don't, things I don't miss. I, I don't think there's anything that I, I miss about that environment. Other than we were, I, I do I do kind of appreciate the camaraderie of everyone coming together to work under a really tight budget because it's, you know, you're a lot more close-knit than when you get big, right? Right. The organization gets to be like ours, which we had 1,200 volunteers. I don't, I don't personally know every volunteer anymore, right. which I certainly did in the earlier years. Um, I sure as hell did. <laughs> and, and so I, I, I'd say if I missed anything, I missed the closeness of, of the community that we had putting on the event. Uh, we mm-hmm. still have a pretty close community, mind you, but it is harder when you have, you know, 
1,200 plus people. I miss the challenge of trying to um, bilk Georgia Tech out of money by printing things on their printers that are promotional material, <laughs> but doing it through four or five different file names and logins and things like that I so I can print from Central you're, PS. You're making this on camera. They're going to come out and bill us yeah. for this. They can't years later, later. Why yeah. an invoice. I have yeah. my degree. They can't hurt me anymore. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Ken, well, what about you? I mean, one of the advantages that it had on, because we were at Student Union, Student Union was brand new when we started, started uh, JCon on the campus. Um, no one there was looking at a commission. So whenever I was dealing with catering or I was dealing with the event team, um, they were always, you know, they just were there to make things happen. They weren't, there was no upsell. I wasn't getting a new, because you know, with hotels, you know, if you have a, especially for the events like we had, Tom, you know, we're, we're looking at a particular room rate and we're looking for, we, we've got the magical scale that we're trying to deal with, which means that if we have really good uh, hotel coordinators, odds are they're going to get promoted to a new hotel. Mm -hmm. um, so we might hit it lucky for the time of contract signing that we might have the same rep at the time the event happens. When you're having it at a campus and it's a, it's a, it's a state job, and they have an advantage to working for the state as long as possible, that they continue. You had this, we had the same rep all four years. I dealt with the same person, the same office for all four years that we had at UCF. And they kept thinking they were pricing us out because um, one of the things that we found with, with JCon, everybody's like, our first year at JCon, we, char we charged, we charged from day one. Uh, but we found out the first year is when we tried to get the volunteers for their volunteer hours, we were only charging 20 bucks a head. And people were like, I don't want to volunteer. I'll just pay to get in. So we had to start looking at what that price point was where people were willing to volunteer versus pay. And that drove, that drove the cost of JCon for years, not, not the overall budget, but what was that threshold of getting enough volunteers on staff or staff on staff versus, you know, what they were willing to pay to get in. So that was one of the biggest factors in, in that piece. Just, just the labor market. And you, when you do your first year, like we were only expecting 250 people at the first JCon and we had over 500. So, um, you know, all those, but the events you had on campuses, Hey, you could run down, get something printed, or you could run across or parking or you never had an issue with parking on campus. Um, but you know, other parking things. was pretty good for us too on campus. Better. Well, I say that it was hard to find where to go, but once right. you found campus, you knew like there was a lot of parking yeah. that you right. could get. Um, and now we're so, downtown and now everything costs money. Yeah. Yes. So, so had COVID not happened, what year number MomoCon would 2020 have been? 16. 16. Wow. So this 16. would have been 16 years. Okay. Yep. Yep. Um, <laughs> we need to be more consistent about how we describe it going forward. Is it the 16th year next year or is it our 17th year and 16th event? I think, and I think it's only put the year, year at the end. Jake kind of only put the year on the end instead of having the numbers. It just made life that much easier. Yeah, we never did yeah. like AF, a Anime Festival Orlando. The other Orlando show was one, two, three, four, five. We just put the year at the end. And, and well, and we, don't, we only describe the year in like, you know, some of the literature, you know, like flavor text and things like that. It's always like Momocon 2020, Momocon uh, 2021. You know? I, I feel like we're going to have to count 2021 as our 17th year because the 17th year of the organization has been in, in, in existence is kind of what we're actually saying. Yeah, because we never really refer to the number of events that we've done. No, that's true. It's, it's 17th year of Momocon. Yeah, and we did do an online event. So yeah, it, it well, I'll say we'll we do technically two events in 2020. So yeah. 
because you guys are doing the one in the winter too. Yeah. Yep. We'll be doing Momocon Let's Get Digital uh, December 11th through 13th. Oh, wow. Okay. So, so which, which segues nicely. Um, uh, let's go back to your digital event. Um, Stucky was, was posting and I was replying. We were having a conversation on LinkedIn about how the whole digital convention, and I'm on record as saying, I hate the term digital convention or uh, online convention. I don't like online event. There's no such thing unless we're in Ernie Klein's VR mode. Um, we're creating um, convention experiences, you know, or, you know, trying to replicate stuff. But that said, Stucky has some pretty, well, not just strong opinions, but apparently he's been spending all this time quantifying and crunching data um, you figure, so describe what you're talking about, about engagement and the fall off engagement that you've seen. Sure. So, um, I've, I've watched about 40 fandom conventions, online experiments. Mm-hmm. Um, they've more or less been consistent between, between them. Most of them are doing multiple days as opposed to one day. Uh, most of them are doing more or less panel and events streamed on a platform. And the vast majority of the platforms have been on Twitch though. Some have done custom platforms used YouTube or private Vimeo um, pro account link. Uh, and so about 40 is what I've watched in total now. And uh, since I've been watching these events since late April was the first one, I want to say okay. uh, that first online experiment, if you will, for these, these events that had stopped happening in late March. And uh, so I've seen big events like anime expo. I've seen really small events, um, and so, but they're not inherently that different other than their ability to bring in and create new content. That's the biggest difference mm-hmm. between these events. Yeah. Uh, and then I've also watched ones that are not just anime, but like Gen Con had a, a pretty good um, built online event that had a lot of different um, aspects to it. And, uh, and then, you know, things like just up until the week I made the post that Tom is referencing LinkedIn, that post was made in almost response to PAX Online which was the combination for Reed Pops, Penny Arcade Expo um, West, Australia, and their other European gaming show called EGX. Uh, so they put together a week, nine days technically, of online events. And uh, everything that PAX did was, was well executed in terms of good content, good speakers, strong schedule, plenty of time to promote. They had a lot of promotions. Um, but uh, now keep in mind that PAX West is reportedly somewhere around 110, 120,000 unique attendants. That's wow. and that, it's a sellout show too. I mean, yeah, like there's yeah, demand yeah. is higher. Yeah. So uh, and uh, the event and the ignoring that fact that they were also connecting to and promoting to the EGX and PAX Australia audiences, they were promoting the PAX West audience. They started out about 3,000 unique viewers, concurrent viewers on okay. the, their mainstream. Now they did stream to Twitch. YouTube, Facebook, Twitter. Um, I don't think I missed anything. Stream to Twitter? Yeah, you can. Yeah, um, but there was like seven people watching Twitter and like 10 people watching Facebook and like 30 mm-hmm. people watching YouTube. But they didn't promote the other channels. Twitch was where they promoted people okay. to go to. Uh, they had three channels. And uh, again, PAX, I can't dismiss anything that they structurally did for this event. It was well planned. They had engagement on the Discord and everything like that worked out pretty well. Again, good content, nice production, if you will, for online stuff. Um, but that 3,000 that started out turned into 2,000, turned into 1,000, turned into 300 as the days went on. And uh, again, I, I don't want to seem like I'm coming down on 
packs, this has actually been true for almost every online event. The right. longer it goes, the lower the audience is. They don't, right. they don't keep track with the event. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of factors in that. And I was kind of exploring their discussion, some of those factors um, in the LinkedIn post. And, uh, you know, the weird thing that I will highlight is that PAX has streamed during PAX East some of their content and done that during other shows, PAX East this year. And you can look at analytics and it shows that the people watching, the amount of people watching and the amount of time watched for their streams during PAX East was higher than people that watched PAX Online. It's fascinating that an event that people really want to go to, like PAX East, had more people online wanting to watch than they did for when everyone could watch it and it was, you know, right. the only okay. PAX. Interesting. Uh, that was also true for Anime Expo. Their numbers for Anime Expo streaming was higher than um, at Anime Expo's online stream. Again, I, I'm not critical of these events. I'm just sharing, well, sharing yeah. data. Well, no, data is um, data. Is data. Yeah. yeah. That said, out of the 40, you said you sat through 40. Yeah. You know, uh, which one would do you feel uh, was the best? And I don't just mean like quality of programming. I, which, which one would you say was uh, the best presentation to maintain engagement? Well, very similar. If you had enough time to plan, mm-hmm. uh, then everyone had a very similar production quality, even smaller events. It didn't, right, right, right. The product, this is a, a great equalizer in terms of production. You know, everybody's more or less confined with the same tools right. and the tools are relatively inexpensive. So as long as you had the ability to plan and time to plan, well, production you're also, quality. You're also limited in the yeah. type of content that you can produce. For this for, yes, for for these that, that these events are doing. There are other so, types of content that I'm going to talk about. And, and no, no one really deviated from the script of panels, maybe a cosplay contest, some gaming activities and not everybody at gaming is the, I guess, comparatively less gaming compared to other things. And uh, the thing that set apart some events was, you know, the, the amount of pre-planned content. But as we got further along, as opposed to early on in the first few months, right. mm-hmm. there was more live content and less pre-recorded content because there wasn't as much time to plan and edit pre-recorded content. Right. Or he's saying, yeah. you're yeah. saying earlier there yeah. was more live content. Yeah, because there was right. less time. Like when we did it, there was more live content back in May. But as we progressed, you watch San Diego really kicked it off with entirely pre-recorded, no interaction for their yeah. YouTube right. premiere videos. Um, and then other events proceeded with having similar pre-recorded content versus having any live stream content. And uh, as opposed to interaction. Like that, That's the big thing that I was positing is missing is that uh, here we're talking, and theoretically, we can be responding to chats. We're live right now. I do have chat yeah, yeah. pulled up, and if there are is questions, we can comment. That was not possible in the panels because they're pre-recorded, and and I think that is a component that's missing that might happen at a live event. Um, but but going but going to back answer to your your question was yeah. is if anybody did anything particularly interesting, and again the answer is sadly no. There was nobody that really deviated outside of that basic thing in terms of like who maybe had the best viewership in terms of like viewership versus overall base of attendees that'd probably be gen con gen con uh online had multiple channels and mm-hmm. their channels were highly engaged compared to packs or to other gaming events or even anime events that streamed uh and as a percentage of the presumed 50 to 60 thousand attendees that attend pack or to attend gen con um they had a consistent Two to three thousand for most programs over the three, I think four days they did it. Four days they did it. 
Um, so they had uh, the best turnout, if you want to look purely at numbers versus overall exposure. Like Anime Expo, 110,000. They had about 8,000 watch their concert at one time, like the concurrent viewership. Right. Yeah. 8,000 watch the concert. But the programming was 2,000, you know, 2,000 or ish, somewhere in that neighborhood of 15 to 2,500. Um, and, and, but the concert was key. And that's one other takeaway is that the music events tended to do better in terms of viewership. Even if a program was mostly panel content, then would have a music event. Mm-hmm. The music event tended to pull in a higher audience than the panel. Um, another one, OdaQuest, which is run by a music production company that helps anime conventions bring Japanese DJs and talent. Mm-hmm. Uh, they had some of the, I mean, most famous Japanese talent I've ever seen in a lineup before, um, all together. Yeah, very yeah. topical too. They had the mangaka for Beast Stars. It was a big thing. Haro Itigai, if I'm saying her name correctly. Uh, then you had uh, Yoko Kano do an interview, and these were pre-recorded as well. But right. then they had the DJs later on, and the DJs had a higher performance than the um, in terms of numbers than the panels. Even though, like Yoko Kano, to my knowledge, hasn't really done very many interviews with anybody. Right. Uh, the and you think that would be appealing? I mean, as an event organizer, your brain is like, "Oh my goodness, everyone will want to see this!" Right? That's like because it's amazing. Let me jump in first. So, so here's my thing, though. So, for example, using your Gen Con benchmark there, you get a lot of engagement on the front end, especially with these live events or these concerts and things like that. But uh, like Ken and I did an event for Gen Con, and I think at peak we had 500 people watching at once. Um, afterwards, though, if you look at the video, it's garnered you know an extra 1,600 views. So. You know, is there a way to quantify or have you looked into quantifying the success so, of, hey, very we had few, the live thing. Yeah. Now that we posted it, there's more value afterwards. Very few people are posting their content after the fact. Um, I'm not saying that no one is, but especially the Japanese guests are less comfortable. Even for the content that we had, the, yeah. culturally, for one reason or another, Japanese guests are less comfortable with having a long-term video available easily for some mm-hmm. reason. I don't, I don't quite understand it, but I, I know it's a common request. Um, the other aspect, I guess I would say, is look at San Diego Comic-Con. San Diego Comic-Con chose a method of YouTube as their primary outlet. And yeah. unlike uh, YouTube Premiere, which is a function of basically taking a video and live streaming it the first time as a premiere, they just had the video private until they marked it not private. And they had the schedule, and you open it at the time, and you could start watching it. But it wasn't – there was no chat window, no – experience and they turned off comments to all the videos but uh and and so certainly it's not apples to apples but largely speaking people have not gone back to watch the san diego comic-con content most of the views like 95 percent of the views which was low mind you like Mm -hmm. keanu reeves panel still has less than like eighty thousand people that watched it in total okay you think that would go viral in any other year but people are not really watching it uh, and and it's accessible. I mean, it's, they promoted the the crap out of the YouTube channel. Yeah, uh, but with the pre-record stuff is very much. You don't have that. You don't have FOMO. Okay. Yeah, I agree. It, it, yeah, it's like if you were, I would be more apt to watch a video of a panel that happened live after the fact than I would be of watching a pre-record panel. I, I do agree, and, and I and I comment. Well, that might explain the concerts. Well, the concerts yeah. are more passive, Tom, because like. When we went to see Momo Clover Z at, at, at AX, I wouldn't have dealt with that crowd if we didn't have the seating we had. But I probably would have watched it 
Mm-hmm. And it's something I can have in the background because it's music. It's not something I have to be much That's like true. we yeah. like we say subs and dubs. Yeah, you, know, you have to actually sit down and watch subtitle anime. But you can do six or seven things. Your entire career is based off of being able to do something on your laptop while something's playing in the background. Yes. You can't do that with an interactive panel. You can't do that with you have to focus. about anime. It has to be mm-hmm. active. And I, you, I would you agree with your assessment. The theory passive. The the theory that you have is the same that I have in that people like it as background, but it doesn't explain that people miss skip everything else and then tune in. Like if it's the later part of the evening, people are planning yeah. specifically to tune in for this passive entertainment and and you know some of it is pre-recorded too uh, yeah i mean not all the djs are spinning live in fact well none of them right. were for OdaQuest. yeah um and i think that even the anime expo one was the entirely. furry show was spinning live I'm yeah saying. the fur the furry a week in atlanta people did do a live dj experiment they're still around yeah oh yeah they have <laughs> i mean their community is very well like tight knit yeah. and and not only that i think they're doing weekly not week monthly streams as well um, yeah okay for, for they do a lot event. already with their in-person event with dancing and music specifically. Like that's yeah. like a free dance off is actually yeah. a humongous I, thing I guess at their show. As a percentage, to go back to it, if you're thinking about percentage, Free Week in Atlanta, I think I don't know their numbers off the top of my head, but I think it's something like four or five thousand. Maybe they're a larger one, but it's it's not right, right. right. Well, it's it's an and, niche event. Yeah. And, I mean, and we as a percentage of their stream it. viewership when they streamed, because theirs was like a week before ours, they had like 400 500 so maybe as a percentage that's a higher than what even right, Jenkins yeah. was but the, the overall exposure was much less it just i guess more tight-knit communities had higher mm-hmm. engagement on the people don't want to miss those moments did you watch any of the rtx event yeah, well they they're still they're still going on theirs is actually okay. started on the 20th 20th i want to okay. say and they're going and and they they're have one of the larger shows that has a more tight knit community. That's why they, they do, but they're airing their old panels, and I and they don't yeah. have enough. No, can't keep track. Of, they're using. I'm pretty sure they're using Vimeo as a background, and they turned off the viewer counts. Count. You can't see how many people are watching. Uh, they do have a chat, and mm-hmm. chat is okay engage wise. I mean, I don't have a good measure for the amount because again, it's not. You can't measure their chat window very easily, but um, it's. I would say they're engaged even with the pre recorded content to a degree. Yeah. Well, let me let me throw in two two observations here. One with the furry convention piece, um, we recently did a project where we tried to research every convention in North America because what else can you do during a pandemic? And I, I was aware of the number of furry conventions, but they are so prolific. There will be multiple in multiple regions and states, and they all cross connect with each other. So the loyalty of that fan base, you're you're right because it is a kind of a sub niche niche. I can see the engagement being high. Going back to the Gen Con engagement, um, having done that show for 10 years, you know, Ken and I can attest to the fact, um, your primary demographic at that show are college-educated, analytical tech types. So the amount of engagement that I think Gen Con got to a degree is its fan base and the fact that they are used to walking into a convention it's already highly technical to attend in the real world, you know, using their their database system and everything else to get on there and get things done. Um, but, you know, those are both kind of specific anomalies with the broad strokes here, which is, you know, our anime cons and our pop culture cons. Um, you're just saying, you know, it, I guess we're just saying, you know, we're doing this content piece, but well, people well, aren't as engaged or they're well, just not connecting or it's, it's well, only passive. I, I mentioned 
one other piece of data, which is the, and they're, they're, they're closely guarding most of the data. So I, I won't like feel like I need to share it, the numbers exactly, but they're the amount of people that are watching the first set of guest driven mega celebrity guest driven panels mm-hmm. that were private mm-hmm. access, meaning you had to buy access to it was relatively high. I don't know if they've kept up with that because I don't have consistent information. Um, but there was, you know, 10,000 plus people watching for the one, one hour panel of the stranger things kids, mm-hmm. um, that had paid to get access to it. Right now, I don't know. I, I think I, Wizard World and GalaxyCon were the primary drivers for the paid access to guest panels. There's yeah. been a few others, but the ones that are recurring month, like by every other week, kind of situation. Those two organizations were the ones driving that, and I think they've slowed down from what I've observed. You can watch. You can. There's Twitch channels. Wizard does on Twitch. GalaxyCon sells through a service, so their information is more private. Yeah, Grotex. Um, yeah, and uh, but that was initially very powerful. But I think because it was a bite-sized piece of content, and as another data point, um, one of the only anime conventions to charge admittance to their event uh, was Otakuthon in Canada, yeah, and right. they charged fifteen dollars. Largely, I believe that was most mostly to cover the fee for VFairs, which is the software they used for their program. But they included if you bought early enough a badge. Um, that they mailed to you. Yeah, and they went all in though. They had like your virtual exhibit hall and all that stuff. Yeah, we, we had a virtual exhibit hall, but it wasn't virtually represented in yeah, the same way. The, v Fairs was the software that made the virtual software. And an actual production company, strange that I, I know them, but they're in the Smash world. They've done a lot with Smash tournaments. They had mm-hmm. hired a, a Canadian production company to interface with V Fairs to allow for V Fairs logins to connect with a private live stream. So they used software and credentials to make a live stream private so it wasn't just on twitch um and they they kind of cobbled those pieces together to put this together but it had a high participation for a smaller event um i won't share some of the numbers i think some of it's in privilege but they had higher engagement than i would have thought people by having the opportunity to pay i would say had a more consistent streamline engagement Um, well, this this goes back to the Gen Con logic that we, we go back to Gen Con real quick. We do Gen Con. We've done years of, and we've explained to companies we work with, you can offer a demo or a workshop that's free. It doesn't cost you anything to do it. So you put it in the schedule and you say, this is free. And then the next year we came back doing this in the anime track with, with the company. And we said, okay, we want you to do the exact same thing you did last year, which we know is a promo push. You do it. The difference is we want you to charge six dollars for it and they're like well we only got like you know two people out of 10 seats each one that's not gonna work like just try it and they tried it and because you actually had a value attached to it that wasn't right. zero you felt that there was a higher value percentage. or they made sure to go that was the other yeah thing. so so yeah, they spent the six dollars and suddenly you know with the same exact presentation the year before they they said for free and got two people they were selling these things out at 10 seats per seating so i think you know what you brought up there with, with what they did is $15 isn't going to make or break. And yes, there's a cost and, you know, we're printing and shipping badges and things like that. But even charging is a small amount. I think there's a sweet spot there too. Right. Yeah. That it's I, going to show, Hey, we feel there's a value. So why, please, please, you know, pay we've, the money. Created, we've created an intrinsic yeah. value to it by, yes. by adding a, a dollar value to it. My, one of the things we've, we've talked about from the beginning here, Chris is, um, we, we talk engagements. You've been talking engagements the entire time, which is great. But as you know, as a convention, 
you would look at the physical engagements. How many people did you have? Do you traditionally have in your main events hall for any one particular panel? Because it's like, yeah, you know, Jay Con at its height had 6,800 people, but we only had maybe 2,000 in the main events hall at any one moment. So looking at, hey, this event only pulled X. Well, if that was a live event, how many how many butts in the seats were you expecting in the first place? Well, I think there's something to be said about that when you look at the other things, the non-panel programming, right. because it, it he's right. A lot of people are just doing panel content and, right. and that's it. But uh, from the knowledge that we have of people that are doing vendor events, they're mm-hmm. not the vendor piece of it is is well so far below in the right. sale of what something would be in an event. And I, I think you're you only have this to really go from in a digital event. You only have panels. Like if, you know, I'm at AX and my main events room is seating something like three or 4,000 people and I had three or 4,000 people on the stream. That's the only thing I have though. There's no exhibit. There's no exactly. hall. There's no exhibit hall piece. There's no, there's no cosplay wandering around and stuff like that. So I think it's well, just I, a different metric. I'm going to be, I'm going to be corrected afterwards. I'm not going to remember who did it, but I think it was a variety article that came out after San Diego Comic-Con, that's how they started quantifying it, which is Hall H seats X number of people. This video, which would have been a Hall H video, only got X number of views. And so, and, and that was the beginning yeah. of the conversation earlier this year of the, well, how, do you, how do you gauge if that was successful or not? Well, yeah, but Hall H is a bad, it's always going to be a bad, but just the way that San Diego runs Hall H is mm-hmm. ass sign itself. It, it it artificially inflates some panels because people are are warming seats for later for later panels. They did yeah. true room clear. It'd be a completely different set. That's why. Uh, yeah, I've never been a real big fan of the whole H. Yeah, I, I agree. The model for engagement um, based on numbers of viewers is, but it is 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 questionable because you if you uh, for some small panels especially. Maybe they're getting significantly more exposure than they would have at the show based on number of eyeballs that viewed it. Yeah. But you got to question what an online view is worth. I mean, views are measured usually by percentage of content watched, but sometimes as little as I think five seconds are watched is a view, counts as a view, especially on YouTube. It's just a very small amount of time. Is that really worth it if somebody came in, looked at five seconds of the video and then left? Is that worth anything to anybody? Uh, and maybe it's worth more than no view, but I would say that's not really worth much of anything. Well, but so that's why another metric can be used, but it's harder to quantify is minutes watched. Right. That would be, you know, minutes watched. And you can you can equate, equate that to if you're a panel room that seats 500 people, 70% full normally, you know, to say for a panel, and you multiply that for an hour long panel, that's the amount of minutes watched. Right. You can more or less mm-hmm. compare that with online content, I think, in a similar way. And that might be more true measure in terms of a, a content. It's just you think harder. minutes watched or percentage watched. Because if I'm a minutes thirty minute watched. presentation and you've watched fifteen minutes, that's fifty percent. Yeah, I, I would say minutes watched is probably because you don't have. There's no quantifiable way to go back afterwards and actually check a percentage watch of a live stream. It doesn't really hmm. work that way. Right. Maybe YouTube video, but usually only the creators have access to percentage watch of their video content. Not. No, no. Not something you can go back and externally look at after the fact. Bringing up something you, you brought up, though, is, as far as the, you know, is five seconds counted as a view and, and that nature, and, and you're more well-versed in this than I am. Um, this kind of goes back to the old school convention argument of uh, uniques versus turnstiles. 
uh, right. what streaming services count Tom watched the same movie preview five times as five times versus IP or logins or, or, or people. I mean, is there a, is there a consistency in that within the streaming uh, uh, presentations or is it inconsistent? It's, it's a little inconsistent. They all have a very variety of numbers, but it's, it's all short. It's all in order to count the, the difference. And that's why I use live concurrent views as a mm-hmm. yeah. demonstration because it's kind of like who's in the panel room now. Right. Kind of right, right. Yeah. Well, yeah. Um, it's a good and, metric. And it's about one of the best metrics you can measure because you can also measure it over time, like pick yeah. up and then decrease. It's very visual, visual measurement. When you look at analytics, you could see increases for panels. Like for PAX Online, their marquee panel was Acquisitions Incorporated, which is their version of like a live D&D play with some celebrity right. people. Uh, and, and that one was their peak panel and had a, about 3,200 viewers at Friday. But the stuff before and after it was... Just it was a mountain just for that content, and then nothing. Yeah, comparatively. Well, you also have to think about the. I think the important thing about this is the audiences, which is why I mean, we're we're doing a, a December event, but we're doing it radically different and for radically different reasons than we were doing a May event. Uh, a lot of uh, you've got an audience of diehards for a lot of these in-person events, and then you've got an audience of casuals. And mm-hmm. it's just, you know, I've got something on the weekend to do with my kids. I like the costumes. Maybe if they're Dragon Con fans, I go down to the parade and it's cute and everything. And in my opinion, all of the shows that didn't happen this year felt the need to do something for their dedicated fans. And right. that's who we're seeing a lot of the people going right. to this yeah. content is just the dedicated fans. And I think there's something to be said that that needs to be done to connect with people, to keep your brand in front of people, to make people know that you care, that you're still there, that mm-hmm. we want to have an event. My God, and, we and, absolutely do. And to that extent, I think DragonCon probably did the best job with that. Out of all the events I've seen, they went above and beyond in terms of having badges available. They made a very good Discord um, server. Um, several events have made Discord servers, but I would say that DragonCon probably did the best job. And the Discord server was what allowed people to role play the convention experience if you want more uh, okay and oh, i loved the way they handled their parade the yeah. parade was fabulous and and so i'd say that they, they went better in terms of catering towards the hardcore fan audience that attends dragon mm-hmm. con and and keep in mind you know i i would rank dragon con's fan passion for the people attending that event much higher normally than other events like right oh, absolutely yeah. the people that go to dragon con are super fans of dragon con large by and large um and and not to insult any other events even our own oh, event, no. i would say uh, momocon is not audience is not as dedicated as the audience for dragon con is dedicated for dragon con um i don't know very many events that are I can count on one hand the events that I think are in the same category as Dragon Con. Well, the crucible of just attending a Dragon Con event is, yeah. I mean, yeah. going from hotel to hotel, up the hill, down the hill, trying to figure out where everything is, it sort of creates that, hey, I survived, I want to continue yeah. to go. But like one of the things Jess talked about, you know, even those, those, the reasons I went to conventions 10 years ago versus why I go to conventions now, I mean, I have no, the whole virtual thing, my kid likes seeing costumes. My five-year-old wants to see costumes. She wants to have her picture taken with costumes. If she goes to a convention or an event and there's not costumes there, she gets very upset. She wants to see them. Um, so that's one thing she's missing with this whole virtual piece because she's not going to sit down and watch any of that stuff. But of course, you know, when we're Dragon Con, she's, she's at the Marriott. She's meandering about. She's dressed as Spider-Gwen. She's finding other girls dressed as Spider-Gwen and she's having pictures taken. Um, but it's just something that you're missing here with this 
you know, disconnection that we all have. Well, I think it's something that as showrunners that we just, a lot of times you can't see the forest for the trees in a, in mm-hmm. a lot of cases. And I've yeah. seen this with a lot of showrunners. And I mean, I can't say that I'm not guilty of it sometimes too. It's, you put a lot of effort into something and sometimes it, you're putting effort into it and it's valuable effort. And a lot of people appreciate things that you're producing. Right. But sometimes the magic comes from a congregation of people and it's yes. not something you're doing that's necessarily doing it. And I, I think that's true of any of it. I think that's true of tiny shows. I think that's true of stuff all the way up to Dragon Con, you know, like that's very, very large or San Diego or something like that. It's not always the showrunner's direct input or direct action that's making the value for for everybody because there's a bunch of different audiences oh, no, no, no. Yeah. It, when i worked for the that that giant anime show out west and you know had access to surveys and information my favorite tidbit of data we would always walk away from was the the post-show survey of you know the top three number three and number two would always vary it could be this year it was the i came to the convention for guests this year i came for vendors this year i came for whatever but the number one reason never wavered and it was a quote to hang out with my friends right so if your friends are all going to the same place the quality of the event you create around them as a promoter obviously is there to enhance an already set expectation of their interaction and that's what you know going back to dragon con dragon con is legendary for that because it is it's a bombardment of uh, i'm here to see people or there's so many people to see i will find people to see and, you know, I think that is, that's, that's literally the hurdle we're having right now is, you know, hey, we can replicate pieces. We can replicate your favorite panel. We can put you in front of a virtual vendor's room to go shopping. We can virtually do this, but it's, it's a loss in translation. It's just never, you know, I, I, I love my impossible burger, but it's not a burger. You know, well, and that oh, yeah. it speaks really highly to in-person events right. when it yeah. comes back around and when we're past the stage of, humanity i guess and the world in-person events are set to still be incredibly valuable none of these experiences are making that same impact they're just not and and there have been a few events that have done uh virtual components that were their vr um the vr chat now you didn't have to have vr mind you and probably a good percentage did not um there was dokumi which is on our weekend that did a virtual VR chat world. It was more or less simple with a few booths. wasn't anything too extravagant. Uh, there was a virtual Comicette, which is the Japanese um, right. comics yeah. show. It was not done by the same people, but they went with like VKET as opposed to, you know, um, right, thing. Right. And it had Artist Alley booths. Um, there was Lightbox Expo that did a similar virtual, um, virtual booth set up as well. Uh, though you couldn't interact with anybody in that one. That one was entirely just, mm-hmm. you're just an vi- invisible wadi walking through the artist alley. Whereas the other ones, you could interact with other people in the environment that you're around. I know s- several of the furry events have done something either in Minecraft or in VR chat, yeah, which makes sense. Um, one of them started that wasn't an event before, but m- remade a hotel of a, vir- a virtual f- event virtually for that, community so that they had a, the actual hotel to you know do their furry event in more <laughs> or less uh online i don't know the metrics for how many people participated in those they're hard to track after the fact so you either have to be in yeah. there when it's live um and measure it um which i did not do for those i just know they existed and i saw some videos after the fact now we've talked metrics we've talked you know engagements we've talked all that you know luckily 
conventions is something I do on the side. It's not my, it's not my livelihood. It's not my primary livelihood. Uh, I know it's, it's a career for, for the, the, the three of you guys, Tom, uh, Jess and, and Chris, have you been able to move this over to monetization? I mean, have you been able to to look at some of the well, recoveries from misses this year? So, so merchandise is the primary revenue we've been able to generate. Obviously, people are not inclined to buy badges when there's uncertainty, but that's the right. other revenue driver we normally have. Mm-hmm. Um, we, as an event, have not traditionally had a lot of sponsorship, um, but that would have been another driver, and that's certainly a driver for Anime Expo and PAX. They've managed to have some sponsorship sales on top of their stream. I mean, both of them had paid advertisements as a part of that. So I know that they got something in exchange for that. I don't know how much. I guarantee it's a lot less than their their normal show. And none of these events outside of Otakuthon have charged a fee for participation. Um, not saying that there's not been at least one other. And certainly Wizard World and GalaxyCon have paid, had paid guest experiences. Right. Yeah. Um, where the, the benefit has been where they earn money from selling these guest experiences, earning some revenue off of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the but, cameos and stuff like that. Yes. Yeah. Uh, usually the ones that the events do, they take some percentage of the share of the price of the, the access to see them. Uh, yeah. Wizard does all the panels for free and then takes a percentage on the autograph sales. Uh, and so th- some events have tried to monetize because some of these organizations have a large number of people in them, right? Yeah, and they, they have got, to maintain payrolls. And we, things we've and benefited by having a relatively small team here that is paid. And we're a, also of a good fortune to get our um, our fees that we paid our venue back, you know, right. okay. in advance. Yeah. So that, that was good. Some events have not been as lucky. Yeah, situation. some events happened the weekend everything shut down. Like, yeah, right. I believe yeah. it was NakaCon was actually loading in and then could not have the show. And yeah. I yeah. cannot imagine so, how hard that was. And, and so outside of sponsorship, and unless events start charging for the virtual passes, which might be the next step if we see this further into 2021. Um, well, and, I, and, and yeah. to, to jump in as a parallel, just so Ken knows what's happening in the business, um, I can confirm everything they're saying. And also from our contracts that we deal with, we're treating this as uh, there's nothing really coming in and anything coming in is minor side project related or merchandise related. Um, but we're treating this as one long commercial. Uh, and for our larger partners that, that we're contracted with, I don't want to call names of companies, kind of Stucky actually kind of nailed it, which was a lot of them um, w- we've entered into sponsorship partnerships that, hey, we have these demographic databases right. uh, of, of specific markets. You want to market to them, let's create a partnership. You have to pay us to get access to these audiences because our job right now as promoters sitting at home is, and, and, and Jess brought it up a lot too, which was the fans, is perpetual engagement. We have to right. make sure that they know we're still here. And even if it's on the most basic level, I mean, I remember Stucky going, you know, uh, Danielle from our team and I, we, we went a little crazy and then, you know, Stucky drank all the fucking, oh, sorry, I, I guess I can swear my show, all the fucking Red Bull. And suddenly we had, you know, MomoCon Animal Crossing, you know, empire happening. But it was engagement. It right. was. It was, hey, our fans know that we're still here. We're still into the same stuff. So we're one long commercial. Um, and then, you know, disclosure of, of what they said, too. We were one of the lucky ones. We had properties and, and negotiations that allowed us to get the money back to carry us back into next year in a lot of cases. So, but, uh, you know, as we've all heard, there are horror stories out there of these other poor uh, organizations and conventions. And, um, you know, you bring up, uh, you mentioned GalaxyCon. If you look on GalaxyCon's website for one of their 
upcoming shows right now. I think it's Minneapolis or one of them. There's a, you know, Mike, Mike wrote, wrote a eviscerating letter being transparent going, we don't want to move forward. We're waiting to hear back from our venue in the city. It's them, not us kids. Yeah, and that's kind of where, yeah. yeah, and you kind of have to be there. So, well, and a lot of people don't understand, I mean, like all of us have run events. We've all dealt with the, with the budgets. We've dealt with that. And people, a lot of people don't understand those ongoing annual costs mm-hmm. of, you know, all the infrastructure. It's not just that weekend. And it's not just leading up to that weekend. It's keeping everything going, keeping the, keeping the wheels on the car, you know, being able to set those things up. Well, I, I don't have to pay for the website for only one month. Oh, Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. That kind of storage stuff. unit. I don't yeah. have to pay for my storage, storage unit, unit for just one month. That's why we yeah, rented everything. Months, we just leave it on the street. We rented everything. <laughs> so, but we have it, so it, much crap. Yeah. Well, we're coming, we're coming to the end. So I want to end on this, this last question then is, so we talked all about virtual events. You guys ran MomoCon line in the spring. What is going to happen yeah. at your December event? that from everything you've learned that's going to be different or what, that what we should watch for at your upcoming event? So the idea that I, I have is to try to find a way to make it more engaging. You know, how can I make the content itself something that when you tune in, you both a know that it's live, not a question whether is this pre-recorded right, or is it okay. live. So there's okay, I just a little, hold the newspaper up. Yeah, basically, yeah. Uh, and uh, you have the It is 9.26. Yeah. Uh, you have the opportunity to engage with the chat. And, um, Ours is for charity, for Feeding America. That, okay. And then, and then the, the charity, um, we want to do something for charity, number one. But, but there's a selfish reason, which is uh, by fundraising for charity, there's a stake in it. We, right. we, I feel bad about like, just trying to get money for us, right? That'd be kind of, you know, as much as yeah. we want money, you know, it's also not really a great idea to go out there and broadcast like we want you know please give us money kind of situation but if we do it for a charity we now uh, talked about that 15 dollars mark before i don't know if we're able to generate content that i truly would feel comfortable charging for exactly but yeah, if yeah. you can give somebody a financial stake in it such as by encouraging them to donate to a charity and, and right. our charity is feeding america and use that interaction yeah. like uh some of the other charity events do to compete with other members to make somebody on screen do something silly or wear a mask or do some push-ups or things like that right and have it will have some pre-produced content but mostly live content yeah the pre-produced is mostly gap filler between the live Mm -hmm. content right we will be producing live content for three days and there will be some kind of structure like a panel but we're trying to avoid panels as much as possible i think people are paneled out or to make yeah. it interactive, yeah. uh, like having like uh, interviews while you're doing something else. Like right. you're, okay. you're, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, you know, uh, as an idea, I don't even know if we'll guarantee this will be what we choose as the final thing, but one might be if the guest is comfortable with it, the interview is taking place while we're playing a game together like Fall Guys. Right. Or okay. Something yeah. where there's interaction and something else going on on screen and things could happen in real time that change the course of it. So you don't necessarily know how the panel's going to work out at the start of it. Um, and that is the audience not knowing either. So they're more compelled to pay attention. Right. Um, I so, so the, 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 the basic uh, core idea is to shake the idea up a bit, add a compelling reason to tune in and, and hopefully make a difference with the time we're spending. I mean, you know, marketing is great and you know, we want people to know we're here. We want people to know that yeah. we're here. So when we can have the next physical event, mm-hmm. they come out and they remember us and we're not uh, an afterthought compared to other events. 
and and those are all true things. But there, it's also a matter of we're what are we doing with our time, and how can we make the time that we're doing better for everybody, right? And mm-hmm. one of the ways is to do something that might help raise money for charity, right? Um, you know, cool. and and we're I, I mean I'm concerned about the economy at large, and I know that food banks and food shelters and, and the like are running low on their normal things. And so I think something like Feeding America can have an impact across the country. So it's not just localized to here in Atlanta. Yeah. Um, and have an impact on helping that. Uh, so that's, that's kind of the, the thought process behind it. And it, it is similar to a GDQ or a Desert Bus for Hope kind of fundraising mechanism mm-hmm. style, but with a convention spin on it. Right. What are the dates? Oh, yeah. uh, December 11th through 13th. Yep. So December 11th through 13th, they want to find out more. It's momocon.com. Uh, yep. Digital.momocon.com is the direct oh. website. Yeah. They, they have more, more technical URLs than we do. But, yeah, uh, subdomain is the technical term there because it's digital dot. So it's actually a different website and we're, <laughs> we're working on getting it to be slightly oh, that looks nice. I think, I think oh. you guys are on yeah, the main should, website. Um, yeah, we pulled yeah, it up yeah, on our screen. If you click the digital at top there. Yeah, um, digital goes straight to it. Yeah. So that, that'll go to the digital site. And we'll have more updated information. We're, we're conducting, the first test will be October 3rd. We're conducting a, a series of experiments um, on Twitch to educate people what we're doing. So we're going to try out some of these interactive formats uh, weeks leading up to this because we're both trying to learn from it. Right. And we're also trying to educate the audience at large. This is not just another MomoCon online. This is something different. And okay. uh, it's going to take time and it might not even be done immediately uh, until the event starts rolling. But we hopefully will communicate that uh, far enough in advance that people tune in. And we're going to get all of our friends and us to do stupid shit on camera, too. Yeah. So that's, that's half the fun. Because that's the important thing good. of the internet, yeah. doing stupid shit in front of a camera on the internet. And I think that's the perfect place to end this conversation. I mean, yeah. All conventions were all talking head panels, and they evolved yeah. to the point they are now. This evo- this evolution is going to be much faster, so we push to be much faster. And uh, you know, you guys do a great job uh, innovating. Uh, very impressed. Perfect. All right. So one last time, uh, digital.momocon.com. Um, Momocon on pretty much every social media that's available out there. Do you guys still have your MySpace page? Uh, technically, I think it's still up, but we haven't updated it in a while. Yeah. Well, I'm disappointed. We had a live journal too. Yeah, we had the live journal's definitely dead though. Yeah. It's still up, but it hasn't been updated in several years. Okay. We're working on a TikTok right now. It's going to take some time to get ready. But. I will wait to see Stucky dancing on TikTok, and then my life will be Good. complete. You should. You hey, I'm doing a workout video. If you haven't seen the promoton for Digital Momocon, if you mm. see on our Facebook page. There is oh, a man. Let's Get Digital workout video starring uh, our uh, Renee and Winston and me. Mm. Uh, and I have a very creepy look while I'm lifting weights in it. She went for it. I did. It was Momo very- Yoga is next on the hit parade. So, Momo <laughs> yoga. All right. Well, Jess, Stucky, thank you very much for, for taking the time with us tonight. Um, we do sincerely appreciate it. Again, great discussion talking about virtual events. And uh, uh, everybody check them out online. And we look forward to seeing your event this December. Um, so we're going to end because Danielle makes us all pose. So everybody pose really well, cool because then Danielle's going to end the entire show. We're, we're, we're not promoting ready. next week, Tom. Huh? We're not promoting mm-hmm. next week. Next week is we're going to talk about holiday conventions uh, with oh, Holiday Matsuri. Nice. Um, because, you know, we, we, we started out with, with uh, uh, socially conscious shows. This time we're talking about heavy into digital. Next year, 
everybody loves a good holiday and we found a holiday convention to talk to. So uh, three, two, one, we're all going to pose and good night. And we'll see everybody next week. Thank you for listening to this episode of Convention Nerds. The Convention Nerds logo was designed by artist Caitlin Jane. Convention Nerds is a presentation of Wasabi Anime. This recording is copyright 2020 Green Mustard Entertainment, Inc. To learn more about the show, visit greenmustard.com forward slash convention nerds.